Orchard. My name is Nate. I'm one of the pastors here. And this is our teaching service. We'll be continuing uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. So I encourage you to turn to your Bibles there. If you want to use one of the Bibles uh, under the seat in front of you, you can do that. It's on the page 1015. There's also an outline uh, for the message in your bulletin. Um, and while you find that passage, I just want to remind you all uh, that your pastors, your elders, uh, we care for you corporately as a whole, we try to, but we also want to care for you personally, individually, uh, and we want to remind you that we're available for that. So you can send us an email to pastors at orchardbible.org, you can fill out one of the cards at the back and put it in the offering. Uh, if you have a prayer request, if there's something hard, if there's something you're struggling with, we really want to know. And I should say, because we normally don't mention this, if something truly awesomely cool happens in your life, feel free to send those on, along occasionally too. Uh, it doesn't just have to be uh, the darker things of life that we join you in. We love celebrating God's goodness in the life uh, of every person here as well. So uh, whether you're a guest this morning uh, or you've been here all along. I'm so glad you're here. Um, will you please stand if you're able? Uh, and before Paul comes up to preach, we will read uh, verses 13 through 17, 1 Peter chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Bow with me in prayer. Father, as we open our hearts and minds this morning to your word, please bless us through it. Amen. Please be seated. These next few passages that we're going to cover in 1 Peter in the month of December, we could put into a mini-series that we might call Right Relationships. This week is right relationship to government. Next week is right relationship to your owner, in our context, probably your boss. We'll close out December by covering Peter's text on right relationship to your spouse as he addresses it in chapter 3. This right relationship section of Peter's letter is intensely practical. It's saturated with practical commands for the believer. And up until now in 1 Peter, he's addressed the foundation of the Christian's identity. In chapter 2, verse 10, Peter says, Once you are not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. With a new identity, Peter exhorts us to live as God calls us to, as his redeemed people, his holy priesthood. 
we have been changed and our priorities are now different. We need to reorient ourselves in how we do life. One of the most fascinating things to me in the life of a new believer is this reorientation. You can see it happening as the Holy Spirit is unleashed in their lives. They begin to see the changes that they need to make in their life to honor God and live obediently to him. Oftentimes with joy and excitement, they become great evangelists because of this newfound freedom that they are experiencing. Even if you've been a Christian for many years, this reorientation will take a lifetime. It's finally achieved when we're finally united with Christ and glorified with him in heaven. Our passage today has primarily to do with the government. Peter addresses relationship with the government and what our role is in light of the government's authority. Namely, our role is to honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, as we read that in verse 17. Peter addresses the government's and our role in a way that points us to Christ's role. So what is the government's role? In verses 13 and 14, Peter writes, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Any government in any place at any time in world history has two main purposes, to restrain evil and to promote good. One thing is clear. God has given the government authority to do these things. Peter says, be subject to the emperor as supreme or to those that the emperor has appointed. He doesn't say, only be subject if you agree with the policies of the emperor. And he doesn't say to Americans who live in a representative democracy, be subject if it was the person that you voted for. In Romans 13, verse 1, Paul writes, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Even Jesus said, give to Caesar what is his. And he recognized that Pilate, who sentenced him to death, was part of Caesar's delegation. Ultimately, the authority was given by God, not just Caesar. Let's talk about the government's role more specifically to restrain evil and promote good. In Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, it says, And for your lifeblood... I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. This is the basis for human governance and authority. God has given authority for humans to govern and create rules to restrain evil. In this way, Peter writes that the emperor and those governors that are sent by him are to punish evil and to praise those who do good. 
Paul writes as Romans 13 continues, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. God has given human governments the authority to punish evil. To create systems of justice that restrain humans from being as bad as they could be. We can see this as God's common grace to all of mankind. He's given provision for evil to not run as rampant as maybe it could have without it. Governments also are to praise those who do good and in so doing they promote good. Ancient Roman society would praise their heroes by creating statues to memorialize their heroism and gallantry. In most places today in the United States, police officers and firefighters are heralded as those who do good. But real quick, what's one thing that all police and firefighters have in common? They all want to be firefighters. But really, they spend their time helping those in their worst moments. Police officers put their lives in harm's way to protect the community from crime. We see this all over our country. We see this locally, weekly, daily. They're a local example of the restraint of evil. Many times even little children recognize this common way that the government restrains evil and promotes good and the heroism that they assign to police officers. And soldiers throughout time have been seen in many places as restraining evil and protecting civilization from marauding bandits and terrorism of many kinds. I'll never forget how a couple years ago on the 4th of July, my sons and I, I have to confess, were watching a patriotic country music video. One of my sons with awestruck says, Daddy, I want to be an American soldier. He paused and then said, and a police officer. And I thought to myself, have I taught him nothing? (laughs) We have many layers of government all throughout our country that promote good in our society in America. You might receive an award from doing good from the city council. For instance, the Centennial Youth Commission, for those of the youth here live in the city of Centennial, you might receive an award from them when you excel at doing good in the community. You might receive an award from the governor in Colorado for going above and beyond in volunteerism and service to our state. At a federal level, we've all hear of the heroism, the famous awards, different presidential and congressional medals given out for extraordinary contribution to our nation. It's clear that God has given authority to the government to do these kinds of things. It's the primary role of government to do so. But what the Bible does not make clear 
is exactly how government is to restrain evil and promote good. For instance, the way that we think about this in America is vastly different than how people are conditioned to think about this in other countries. We live in a representative democracy where we get to vote. We get to speak out. We get to have a voice in our politics here. We can participate in the process in this way. Many people around the globe know nothing of the kind. Peter, the one writing this letter to us, and these early Christians did not know this kind of civic engagement, voting, voting and lobbying for their political viewpoint. Some nations, even, would claim God's blessing as the nation of Israel did before Christ. The nation of Israel was God's chosen people, set apart by him. Nowhere does God designate another nation like this. And some have said of the United States that we receive favor from God because of our uh, national, because of national Israel and our association with them and that we protect them. Does scripture make this clear? Can we know these kind of things? The answer is no. It's not clear. Let's allow scripture to guide us where it is clear on things. And let's not pretend to have clarity where scripture doesn't provide it. The Bible does not make clear what style of government is to be used to restrain evil and to promote good. Now, by observation and with wisdom, we can discern what some types of governments do well and what types of governments don't do well at restraining evil and promoting good. We could have long conversations. This week, I've already had some of those conversations with some of you about the pros and cons of different kinds of government, different ways to rule. But I think if we fixate on any particular government style, we'd be missing Peter's point and missing the greater point and the larger narrative of scripture about the government that we'll one day experience when Christ returns to consummate his rule and reign forever. But how do we make sense of whenever any government does their rule poorly or worse when they're the perpetrators of injustice and the purveyors of iniquity. Our country in the United States and its many levels of governance, I think, fulfills their God-given role very well in some ways, very poorly in others. I'm not a historian, but I would say that we do a good as job as maybe any country on the globe. The government here, even though we do this well in many ways, doesn't do it perfectly, far from perfectly, in fact. This week in the Washington Post, there was a a report that included a, a bunch of text messages that police officers had been sharing ahead of some riot control in the city of St. Louis. The story went on to tell of a 20 year police veteran who was undercover in that city who was beat to within an inch of his life by these three police officers who had shared texts talking about how much joy and excitement they had to beat people down. The evidence appears 
to reveal to us that these peace officers doing exactly the opposite of their sworn duty to protect the public and uphold justice. Our federal government supports the unbiased murder of the unborn by allowing and funding abortion. We've recently changed the human tradition of millennia as a government by sanctioning the so-called marriage of same-sex couples. When our worldly governments don't uphold morality that they're supposed to, that God has appointed them to do, are we to be surprised? Scripture speaks to this. Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 say, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Psalm 2 illustrates the futility of the nation's rage, not the power of it. As Christians, we are to look forward to, to hope, and to announce to the nations the promised rule of Christ in Psalm 2 and the rest of Scripture. We pick up now with what Peter says is our role as the body of Christ. Verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. God's will, whenever scripture says this, we ought to listen. God's will is that we would do good, meaning submit rightly. As these Christians submitted to human authorities, those who were slandering this first generation of Christians were silenced. Christians, because they didn't worship the emperor and other gods of the age, like may have been expected, were given a rebellious reputation. Peter is saying, submit to the governing authorities, and as you do this, it will silence these who are slanderous of you and of Christ's name. Peter then clarifies the kind of freedom that they have. They are free from slavery to sin and are now slaves to Christ. This is true freedom. We were made to have freedom from sin and to live to God. Now, some would use their freedom to justify their wrong attitudes and their wrong actions. And perhaps they'd harbor a rebellious attitude and follow suit sometimes with their actions. This is not our call as Christians. The life and the vitality of the church must testify to the perfect ability of God, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, to deliver us from sin and preserve us to live a life with him in eternity. 
In verse 17, Peter gives us four simple imperatives or commands to help us solidify our role. And commentator Edmund Clowney compared these imperatives found in verse 17 to the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, as found in Matthew 22, where Jesus summed them up there. There's a similarity in the emphasis between these four imperatives that we're going to talk about and between the two greatest commandments. I agree with Clowney. These imperatives are fundamental to our Christian walk. Verse 17 says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. The first and most important part of our role is to fear God. Proverbs 1.7 tells us that the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. I'll never forget a couple of years ago I was at work and this coworker friend of mine comes up with frustration, kind of nodding his head. And he says to me, holds up his phone, and on his phone is a verse from Ecclesiastes um, in his Bible verse of the day, the Bible app. And uh, this verse in Ecclesiastes was, was about fearing God. Then this didn't make any sense to him. Why would he fear God was his question. And you guys can imagine, this is the very thing I, I pray and ask God for opportunities like this to explain this and, and really like something so central. I was so excited that he'd asked this question because this is the key to understanding so much about salvation. We fear God because he is the omnipotent sovereign over the universe. He created us from dust and he created us with a soul that's eternal. We'll either live with him in eternity in perfect peace and fullness of joy or we'll be damned and we'll spend eternity separated from him with much weeping and gnashing of teeth, as scripture says. This is the starting point for interpreting, making sense of all of life, for understanding spiritual things and for understanding why we ought to be in right submission to governing authorities. Fearing God was Peter's launching point into this practical exhortation of living in submission to the authorities. We have a new identity and how we live out of it is of utmost importance. 1 Peter 1.17 says this, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. It is God who created. It is him who bestows authority to human authorities. Fearing God guides us to right submission because all authority, as we read in Romans 13, is his. He gives it to the government. So if we rebel against the government, we rebel against him. I know many of you have been thinking this, most of this sermon. Well, what about when the government says to do something that God prohibits? Well, the exception to obeying the government and submitting to them is if the government asks us to do something that God forbids 
or prohibits something that God commands. We disobey government in those circumstances in order to be obedient to God. When the government prohibits what he commands and asks us to do something that God forbids, they've ceased to to do their primary function of restraining evil and promoting good. We need to take some time now to ask ourselves some questions about this. What is it that you fear? Do you fear death? Do you fear looking bad before others? Do you fear man in that sense? Do you fear your imperfection? If you're here today and you're beginning to understand for the first time what it means to fear God, I want to invite you to put your faith in Christ for salvation from your sins. God is just and the justifier. Because of his great love, he sent his son Jesus to die and receive the penalty for your sins. Let your fear of God be the beginning of wisdom as you turn from your sin and you submit yourself to Jesus. As it relates to fear of God, we need to go further and ask some questions that relate to government in our context. Do you have fear as it relates to government? Do you fear Democrats? Do you fear Republicans? Is it Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump? A Democrat-controlled Congress? Do you fear persecution or being mocked for your faith? Do you fear legal rulings against your beliefs? Unless you fear God first, your politics on this side of heaven are going to be disordered, no matter what political party you're part of. Unless you fear God first in the content of your views, your views are going to be disordered, as well as the importance that you give the actions or inactions of our government. Fear God, not government. This brings us to our next point. Love the brotherhood. First John 4, great chapter in the Bible on love. Tremendous chapter. A verse that sums up that chapter well is verse 21 of that chapter. It says this, And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Jesus said this would be the mark of how people would know who are his disciples in John 13, 35 said that the world will know those who are his by their love for one another. We ought to so love one another that it's apparent that we serve Jesus and that we belong to him. Jesus and his disciples and Peter here regularly talk of love and its necessity. Now, considering the context of Peter and his audience gives us a good insight into the importance of Christian love among the body of Christ. Think of the early Christians that Peter's writing to. Think of the ordeals and the trials that they faced. 
Consider the persecution that this group of new Christians faced. It's been documented both in the Bible and extra biblical literature, the kinds of things that they were put through. They needed love from one another. They needed this encouragement from one another to follow Christ and submit appropriately. Peter, again, consider this. Peter was killed by the emperor that he's telling them to submit to. I'm sure that he needed encouragement in light of that. This is where eternally focused friendships inside the body of Christ play a huge part. We all face struggles of different kinds. Maybe it's with submission to the government. We're not called to handle these struggles alone. Because you fear God and bear a new identity, do you value loving service to the community of Christ's redeemed people as you should? In verse 17, Peter leads out with, honor everyone as the first imperative that he lists. Who does Peter have in mind here when he says everyone? Well, as the verse flows, it's honor everyone and then love the brotherhood. So I think he puts them next to each other so that we'll see and not exclude our family of God. He's saying honor basically all those who aren't part of the brotherhood. There's a clear difference in a believer's relationship with another Christian and with a non-believer. But we're to honor everyone, even if we don't share the same faith in Christ. Why? Because every human, no matter the level of their lostness, is an image bearer. Humans are made in God's image, the imago Dei, as we say. And we are all from the same race in that sense. We bear the image of God no matter what country we're from, no matter the language we speak, or the God that we worship. We're made in his image. No matter their politics or who they voted for, we are to honor them. Do you honor all people as image bearers? Again, taking this to the context of our relationship to government, Are you honoring and civil in the way that you debate and discuss your differences with people? How do you speak of your political opponents when they're not with you? Are you honoring to them? Or do you sling mud and treat with disdain? We ought to have civility with those that we disagree with. We should lead the way in this as Christians. George H.W. Bush, who just passed away, This has been circulated, so forgive me if you've read this, but it's all over the newspapers and social media. He left a note in the Oval Office for the presidential nominee who had just defeated him. This is what the note said. Dear Bill, when I walked into this office just now, I felt the same sense of wonder and respect that I felt four years ago. I know you will feel that too. I wish you great happiness here. I never felt the loneliness that some presidents have described. There will be very tough times made even more difficult by criticism you may not think is fair. I'm not a very good one to give advice, but just don't let the critics discourage you or push you off course. 
You will be our president when you read this note. I wish you well. I wish your family well. Your success now is our country's success. I'm rooting hard for you. Good luck, George. When we don't have civility with those that we disagree with, it's a good sign that we fear something besides God. Lastly, Peter says, honor the emperor. Now, the order of where this is placed is, again, seen it as a clear play next to fearing God, that we are to fear God, not the emperor. When the emperor shows up right after fear God, there's some intended irony here. Now, emperors were said to be divine. Peter places it here, and he uses the same word as honor, and as an honor all people. To really show we're to honor all people and honor the emperor. But we don't need to fear them. Matthew ten twenty eight, Jesus said, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Our passage today started out with the words, be subject. What does it look like to be subject to human institutions and to honor the emperor in this way? A synonymous word that I'll use is submission. What is right submission? Is it an outward action? Something that we just, we submit outwardly? Or is it an inward attitude that's reflected outwardly? Maybe guess, I think it's the latter. I think outwardly we can have a look of submissiveness, but inwardly we still have a rebellious, disobedient heart. Now when we start with fear of God, not fear of the emperor, it naturally follows that we recognize rightfully the authority that the emperor has. That's what Peter's getting at. Put them in the right order, otherwise things get disordered. Submission, I want to talk about for a minute, it's a loaded word. And it might have different connotations to different people who have different experiences in life. I'm not saying the word submission means different things. I'm saying it's such a loaded word that it's a sensitive word. To clarify what it is, I want to talk about a few things. Submission that God's telling us to do is not out of weakness or frailty. Submission is a choice that we make when we see God is placed in authority in certain places in society, in our workplaces, in our churches. Government, as we have seen earlier, is God's way of ordering society. Now, submission is not blind obedience where we sort of just turn our mind off and are thoughtless about doing everything that the one in authority says. You shouldn't do that anywhere. You shouldn't do that in this church. You shouldn't do this in your workplace. And you certainly shouldn't do it with the government. We're called to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.5. Verse 13 continues. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. For the Lord's sake, we're to be subject to human institution. Because if we aren't, 
We undermine God's good design that we be governed by those he's given authority. Again, verse 15 says that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. These people that Peter speaks of don't know God's design. For his sake, for the Lord's sake, when we are subject rightly, we're doing good. We're doing the good that silences the critics. That's the doing good, is submitting rightly. Right submission is what Peter has in mind when he says that. And he has that in mind because it helps us reveal Jesus to the world. Again, mention this, the best illustration, I think, and there's all kinds of challenges to this that I'm sure you're thinking of. I've thought of them all week and intended to not go there. But Peter, again, he's telling these people to submit to the emperor who crucified him. He was murdered by this guy. And he says, submit to him because God put him in authority. This is hard for our minds to get. There's another place in scripture that we see this. Reminds me of King David being chased by Saul in the wilderness and Saul and his whole army were trying to kill him. But David wouldn't raise a hand against God's chosen authority for the nation of Israel. Now there's certainly some vast differences between Saul and the emperor but the parallel, I think, is the same for us. So where does this leave us? How do we live as citizens of a nation while being permanent residents of the kingdom of Christ? We're to be subject to human authorities, acknowledging that they have a God-given role under his sovereign rule in the universe. And we're to acknowledge our own role to love the brotherhood, to honor everyone, fear God, and honor the emperor. Now it's clear that Christ's kingdom is different than the kingdoms of this world. We submit to one while we work for another. As last week's text said, we're to live in this world as sojourners and exiles. This world is not our home. The kingdoms and governments of this world do not hold our ultimate purpose. Now, for those in political service, which I would argue is every one of us as American citizens, we have an obligation, I think, as Christians to vote. We realize that our service, whatever the level, is service under God for his purposes. Christians who serve in democracies must serve the good of the whole people, not their own glory, especially the good of the poor and the needy who cannot defend or provide for themselves. Just as Jesus showed humility by wrapping a towel around his waist and washing Peter's feet, so Jesus' followers must be humble of heart and make themselves lowly, recognizing their purpose to care for others and to work for justice. For the Christian, we must exercise authority differently. The world doesn't get this. We ought to understand our our position is for those that we lead and serve. It's not for us. Psalm 2 continues. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. 
The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. As Christians, we're to point the nations to the ultimate and eternal reign of Jesus Christ. This is how we live as citizens of the earth while members of Christ's kingdom. In this way, we're a prophetic voice to the nations of Christ's rule and his reign. Mark Dever has insightfully said this. Before and after America, there was and will be the church. The nation is an experiment. The church is a certainty. Christ came to earth as a baby. In love, his father sent him. He inaugurated his eternal reign. One day there will be a consummation. In our fear of God, our love for the church, our honor to all his image bearers and submission to the authorities, we herald the message that Christ will rule forever in perfect peace and righteousness. Oh, how we long for this day, both spiritually and politically, to proclaim it and make it known. This past Monday, we had some friends over for dinner. Um, There's some friends of our friends who actually live in our basement. And uh, they go to, most of them go to the seminary and represented at dinner that night. I just, as I was preparing for the sermon, I thought this was so cool. There was seven different languages represented that, that are like native or like semi-native and five different countries around the world. Um, everybody but one, one of Linda and I and another uh, gal from church, but everybody else was seminary students. And uh, they all have vast ex- experience under different governments. All of them obviously now here in the United States, but Previously, one of them was from a tribal region in kind of the far, like, northeast in India. The guy spoke four different languages or knew parts of four different languages. Uh, the girls who live in our basement are from South Korea, um, grew up in the Philippines their whole life, and one woman who is from Bolivia. They all, having spent their time uh, submitted to different governments, and having lived under different kinds of injustice at the hands of their governments, are seeking to serve Christ and to bring his kingdom. Our new friend from Bolivia shared her story of salvation with us a few months ago. She was born into a family that had for generations been deeply involved in another religion, a different world religion. She shared of the time that she received a Bible. The Bible sat there for a while, some time passed, and she began to read it. She actually read the whole thing. 
And she realized her need for a savior. She put her faith in Christ. And now as she reorients her life around Jesus and his righteous rule, she sees the injustice and the abuse of women and children in her country. The way that many children are manipulated into selling their bodies for sex. She had worked previously for organizations that serve homeless people, abused women and children. Currently, she's seeking to add to the weight and body of her experience to get a master's degree here in the United States. This will give her standing and some prestige back in Bolivia. She understands the systematic corruption in her government that puts many women and children at risk. She's busy proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus and working within a framework that's provided in her country to stop the injustice and to call it out for what it is. This is our call as Christians to work under the structures that he's placed over us to improve what we can now while we point to the final perfect reign of Jesus for all eternity. I want to close with a story from the book of Acts chapter 4 that I think is illustrative for us. Starts in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Please stand as we close in prayer. And now, Lord, we need your help with this. We look upon the, the chaos throughout our country, throughout our world, and many are threatened around the globe. We see injustice and sin and we grieve. We say, come, Lord Jesus. We live in a battleground of competing gods, all striving for allegiance from us and from all your image bearers. And we pray for boldness, boldness to proclaim the reign of Jesus that has begun and will continue forever. While you tarry, Lord, guide us to this end and give us wisdom to make much of King Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.